This evening I'd like to speak about dimensions of insight and to explore the areas of our lives and being where insight is intended to liberate, to bring about a deepening of understanding that allows us to live with less confusion and conflict and with greater peace and freedom. I do feel it's very important to talk about insight. Most often this practice is referred to as an insight or vipassana practice. And yet for many people, this very word insight is a kind of a mysterious word. And sometimes people even feel a little embarrassed about it because we know that we're here practicing this way supposedly to deepen in insight. Yet we can feel very uncertain about how all of that is supposed to happen. We might have questions about what does an insight look like? A question of, how will I know if I have one? And are there special kinds of insights that we're actually supposed to be having? Or even we might think, well, are there special ways or techniques or practices that kind of act as a catalyst for insight? And very often in moments of confusion, we even feel very sure, you know, that there must be a special technique that instructions were given about and the sitting that we missed. <laughs> I think being somewhat mysterious, we are tempted to think of insight in the framework of startling revelations. And it's not uncommon for people to sit on their cushion waiting to be almost rocked off their cushion by the impact of some very powerful insight. And we think insight might come in a way, you know, where suddenly, you know, the road to Damascus kind of experience and our eyes are opened and maybe the scales suddenly drop away and we have our own personal Bodhi tree experience on this cushion that transforms us into a totally new being, you know, unrecognizable to anyone else, even to ourselves, and we're going to be able to take this totally transformed new being home, and everybody is going to say, my, how you've changed, you know? <laughs> this is the kind of romantic version, the romantic version of insight. There's a wonderful Zen poem that says, before a person studies the Dharma, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And after he or she attains penetrating insight into the nature of life, 
Mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. But when he or she understands the deepest truth, mountains are once more mountains and rivers once more rivers. Now there are times, of course, when insight does come in a way that is very startling and very apparent to us. And we do have the experience in a way that our eyes are suddenly opened and we see something, see ourselves in a very new way, a very new light. There are also many times when insight occurs in the most gentle and quiet of ways. And there is not necessarily a point where I say, oh yes, I had an insight. Whatever way that insight comes to us, we are actually changed. We are transformed on a very cellular level. Insight does alter our way of seeing, our way of holding ourselves and life. It does bring greater peace and freedom. This is one of the characteristics not only of insight, but of insight that is profound enough that it is also embodied in our lives. This is an important part of insight, that it is embodied, it is lived. The purpose of any insight is to liberate, to free the mind and heart of delusion and confusion, to understand what is true in ourselves and in the nature of life. Now one dimension or one area of insight is in the area of self-understanding, the area of personal in insight, understanding on a personal level an inner level, what it is that moves and guides us in our life. What are the forces, the patterns that move and guide us? Part of personal insight, understanding our own story, is to look deeply into ourselves and to see what it is that brings conflict and pain and what it is that brings peace and freedom. And we do need to be actually very clear here that wisdom does not bring confusion and pain. It is misunderstanding, confusion, delusion that brings pain and disconnection. In many ways, personal insight is understanding the nature of our own life's baggage what we carry with us, the inclinations and tendencies, the forces of conditioning that superimpose themselves upon our inner and outer realities, sometimes in ways that lead us to practice confusion or to enact patterns of conflict in our lives and way of seeing. It is also very important to see that insight has no flavor of judgment. Its purpose is not to censor, 
Its purpose is not to focus upon all of those things within ourselves that we deem to be imperfect. Its purpose is not to blame. The purpose of insight is simply to see so clearly with a spacious and clear awareness that is deep enough that we no longer feel bound, that we no longer feel entangled with or bound by patterns of conflict, regardless of how long their history is. It is not believing any longer in that which is false. Now, as you have discovered here, when you sit, you meet yourself. This is an inevitable and intimate encounter. In a retreat, there are really not that many distractions and little busyness to intrude upon that very intimate meeting with ourselves. It's not always a welcome meeting. Sometimes it feels almost as if we are stripped naked, exposed to ourselves, revealed to ourselves. Now, there are people in the spiritual life who really feel kind of tempted to shun or dismiss this area of personal understanding. They might say, well, you know, there's very little that's mysterious in my story or very little that's spiritual about my personal dynamics. And they find themselves maybe looking for something juicier, you know, some more enlightened dimension of insight or some sort of special experience. Yet I feel it is very true that within this first meeting with ourselves, this first dimension of insight, that it is here that we actually lay the foundations of all understanding. Here we lay the foundations of all understanding. No one bypasses themselves on the way to enlightenment. No one. No one has yet discovered a path in which we bypass ourselves on the way to enlightenment. In this first meeting with ourselves, we lay the foundations of acceptance, of allowing, of compassion, in this first meeting with ourselves, we learn the very primary lessons of equanimity, of balance, of acceptance, of peacemaking. Now, what is this personal story, this first dimension of insight? Well, self-understanding is about exploring who we think ourselves to be. Our personal story, of course, holds our past, experiences, memories, images, all the beliefs that we've accumulated through our lives, all the memories, the countless storehouse of memories of fears and hurt, rejection, the countless memories of feeling safe, of pleasure, of intimacy, of happiness. Our personal story reveals the tendencies and patterns of conditioning that we carry, the kind of grooves 
that our minds work in that sometimes feel like ruts. You know, the grooves, the patterns of conditioning such as anger, such as fear, such as greed, um, such as anxiety, and especially, most especially, our personal story holds all of the ways in which we define ourselves, our beliefs, our self-images, our descriptions. It's like if we were to give you all a piece of paper with only two words written on it, I am, and then asked you to fill in the blanks. Well, you know, we could write books. Often we could write pages that would be filled often very often, with our beliefs about who we are. And those beliefs, those beliefs as personal descriptions, is of course what separates our story from the story of other people. Now this personal story, this, you know, this personal story is powerfully evoked by <clears throat> the stillness and inner listening of a retreat. Sometimes in ways that is very intense. Sometimes in ways in which we feel overwhelmed and overpowered by ourselves. Sometimes in very painful ways. Discovering beliefs that we carry, feelings that we carry, that we would really rather do without. Sometimes our personal story is evoked in a way in which we feel terribly embarrassed, you know, by the contents of our story. It's like when you're sitting on a cushion and engaging in one of these rather, you know, these unmagical mind moments about where you're, you know, spending many, many minutes you know, reflecting on how another yogi's hairstyle irritates you, or, you know, reflecting on your strategy about how to get in the first in the lunch line, you know. And then you open your eyes, and it's like you're surrounded by Buddhas. And, you know, all of those other Buddhas in the room seem to be engaged in a real spiritual path. And you can't believe, hardly at times, the utter pettiness of your mind. <laughs> and at times also, our personal story simply drives us crazy. You've experienced that here, you know, the repetitiveness, the utter repetitiveness <laughs> of the tapes, you know. How many times, it's like, you wonder how many times do I have to revisit <laughs> that particular thought? <laughs> Sometimes when we are faced with this particular story, we're tempted to think, well, there's nothing to learn here. And that may be true. But it is also true that insight is not dependent upon the contents of our minds. That insight actually has very little to do with the contents of our consciousness. Awareness actually cares not one iota whether we have the most trivial of thoughts or the most profound. 
Milarepa once said that the wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. Insight depends not on the contents, but on how we embrace all of this. How we embrace all of these contents, how clearly we see, how much we see this personal story as an ongoing invitation to deepen in those very qualities of heart and mind that allow us to see more clearly. To deepen in acceptance, to deepen in dedication, to deepen in clarity, to deepen in forgiveness. When we meet our personal story, regardless of how painful or how profound it happens to be, how trivial or how deep, we meet almost like a par uh, two pathways that open up to us in meeting our personal story. One of those pathways leads to a deepening of insight, and the other pathway is a detour. It's an alternative route. Now, one detour that arises particularly in relationship to a story, an inner experience that is painful or stressful, when we see perhaps painful memories or judgments or belief systems, you know, being very repetitive, being superimposed again and again in ways that we feel so entangled. One of the detours is to, of course, believe, as we've already spoken about, that I have to alter the contents of this story. I have to make it different into something else. Another of the detours is to feel that I must trace the origins of this story that probably began long before we were born. Another of the detours is to feel that somehow it is unacceptable and so therefore must be altered and transformed, that our anger has to be changed into loving kindness. And you might have tried that one, you know? the gritting of the teeth as you're extending loving-kindness towards someone you absolutely hate, <laughs> that our greed has to be turned to generosity, that our obsessions have to be uprooted. Often in this kind of uh, agenda, in these attempts, what we don't always see are the ways in which we are actually strengthening and reinforcing the very belief system we are trying to get rid of. You know, it is like someone coming on a retreat convinced they have a greed problem and they decide to fast here and spend their days either fantasizing about food or else praising themselves for how heroically austere they are being. We're still very much locked into food either way. It's like a person who comes here, you know, determined that this is a place that they're going to get rid of their authority issues. You know, so every, you know, contrariness becomes the path, you know. It's a group today, I'll go tomorrow, you know. It's, it's a walking period, I'll sit, you know. It's a sitting period, I'll walk, you know. Not seeing the ways in which dancing with this particular form of rebellion, we are actually already all often reinforcing, giving authority to our reactions instead of the authorities we projected outwardly. 
I do feel it's important to understand that we only feel obliged to get rid of something that we have already adopted and possess as a personal description. These efforts of getting rid of only arise in those circumstances, in the light of something that we have already adopted as a personal description or definition. Sometimes in <clears throat> reacting against them, as I mentioned, we give authority to them and sometimes very much reinforce our own feelings of unworthiness and failure. Certainly, we create endless busyness. Joseph once said, you know, in this life, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> you know, you can spend aeons, well, maybe days, you know, working on your greed and feel you get somewhere, and then it's anger, you know, and you work on that, and you feel you get somewhere, and then it's lust, you know, and you get somewhere with your lust, and oh, there's something else, you know, now it's time to work on my sloth. It's like the never-ending agenda of improvement Sometimes the personal story worked on in this way can actually also be called the never-ending story. <laughs> there is no completion. It is not to say in any way that the personal story or this area of understanding, area of insight, should be ignored or dismissed or sidelined in any way. Attention and healing is very much needed within our personal stories. Compassion, forgiveness, spaciousness, equanimity, all of these are needed within this story about ourselves that we carry. But all of these qualities of compassion, of forgiveness, of healing, they are not the attributes of an improved self of se sense of self. And I do feel it's so important to understand that, that compassion and forgiveness and acceptance are not the attributes of an improved sense of self or any self at all. That these qualities which heal, these qualities which bring clarity, they are the characteristics of awareness. They are the characteristics of a clearly focused mindfulness. They are the children of being able to see things as they are, being able to see things as they are with a kind and gentle attentiveness. This creates a healing space and it is also what allows us to let go. Part of creating this space of healing and this, this capacity to let go is actually to cultivate, I think, as a very primary focus in our practice a sense of spiritual disbelief, divine disbelief. This is the kind of very positive, very creative application of doubt to our own belief systems, to our own areas of holding, to our own areas of identification, to our own images and self-descriptions, to cultivate this sense of spiritual disbelief. Yeah, and I mentioned this last night, this question, you know, and there, you know, in many traditions, this is what the practice is. You know, in, in the 
And in the Vedanta traditions, it's neti neti, you know, not this, not this. Not this, not this. Great meditation teacher once said, when all things have been taken apart, what is left is true. This questioning, this sense of spiritual disbelief, divine disbelief, means that all things are open to question. All things are open to question. No matter how long we've lived our lives with a, an image of who we are, a description of who we are, all things are open to question. All things are open to doubt. What are the origins of a healing space? A healing space, its origins are never found within the contents of our mind within the contents of our mind and the activities of self within that space, we don't find healing very often. Often what we find are judgments, opinions, comparisons, busyness, and identification. The origins of a healing space are learning to take refuge in wise attention. Neither being averse to nor drawn to whatever is present, to hold all things equally. I think for us, this capacity to allow asks of us such a tremendous leap of faith, a leap of trust, because we are so accustomed to the strategies of, of action, of doing, of intervention. And there are many times in life, of course, that these strategies are totally necessary and wise. But they also become habitual. You know that here, I believe, it is also up to me. It's up to me to alter it, up to me to fix it. It takes such a great leap of faith to allow all things to be to, to really trust that whatever understanding, whatever completions are needed, that they are going to be born of wise attention. You know, we, it's very helpful, very relieving actually, to let go of this notion of being so much in charge. It's such a tremendous liberation to give up this notion of being so much in control. I mean, think of the experiences you've had today or had yesterday. Think of the worst moment. You know, did you invite it? Did you wake up this morning and say, right, great day to be depressed. That's what I'm going to do today. You know, or I'm going to do at greed today. You know, it looks like a perfectly good day for greed. You don't. You don't. There is a process involved which is very conditioned. They arise, they appear, and they were also passed. Our sense of effort or responsibility is to bring the wise attentiveness. Not to panic, not to become anxious, not to define ourselves by, but to bring the wise attentiveness. You know, there's a whole lot of great people of past and present. You know, teachers of very profound wisdom. And I think it's really important to bear in mind that I, I bet none of them, 
had as a prerequisite to that profound wisdom a perfect personal story that was filled only with happy endings or that their, their profound wisdom was the result of having a perfect self? I don't think so. Mostly it was because they abandoned the need to have a perfect self. There is no story and no personal description, no history that is actually an obstacle to wisdom. The obstacle to wisdom is in identification. The effect of learning to hold our inner world in a calm and clear attentiveness is that inner world begins to soften. The thoughts, the judgments, the mind states, the images, which previously have seemed so definite, so defined and so hard, begin to soften. They begin to lose their certainties and begin to lose their capacity to define us. Out of that wise attention comes compassion and love and forgiveness. And that wise attention penetrates identification. Some of our personal stories are very short stories. They're based upon whatever experience, whatever sensory impression, thoughts, sounds, sights, sensations that are arising in the moment that we feel attracted to or resistant towards. In those stories that are created, you know, there's, we ha there's, they hold a very central, clearly defined character, us. That's the central role. You know, you see it. You have a sitting that's difficult. And boy, what a story comes with it. You see how quickly it happens. You know, this total business of I'm a failure and this, you know, spiritually challenged and, <laughs> you know, spiritually tragic and panic and doubt and all those things. You know, it seems so real in that moment. You know, and it's not necessary to say that it, what we call is a good sitting produces a better story. You know, it just produces a different one, you know, about how, you know, what a spiritually progressed I am, you know, and obviously, you know, I'll give the talk tomorrow night and, you know, all that kind of business, you know, these self-congratulations. Now, many of these stories that we experience in the day, well, they just make, you know, little brief appearances. We've forgotten about them by lunchtime. Sometimes we've forgotten about them by lunchtime or they make a very brief appearance because we've let go of them. We see them as they are and we let go. Sometimes they're forgotten because that story that we're in in the moment, no matter how intense it is, gets swept away by the power of the next story. It's like there's only room for one story at a time, you know, and so one has to disappear before the next one can come in or else that one's already starting, so it gives the kind of, you know, the bum's rush to the one that's already there. It's out, you know. The next one is in possession. In a retreat, we experience ourselves inhabiting almost every role and position it is possible to experience. We go from being a villain to a savior, a warrior to a victim, 
a lover to a hater, the roller coaster of identification. It's the roller coaster of identification. Now, some stories, some of our personal stories, have a much longer history. They're kind of like Gothic novels, repleting the same themes over and over again against countless different backgrounds. And actually, the arena of repetitive stories, I think there is far more temptation to become very engrossed in them. You know, little ones, they're easy to recognize. But when they're repetitive, it's almost like we say, this is the real story. <laughs> and I'm finally getting to it. I'm finally getting to the truth about myself, rather than just finally getting to a more, more prolonged and more historical story. But the temptation then is even more to dive in, to resolve, to get rid of, to find answers. You know, it's often like people are really mindful and they're really steady and then something comes up and it's like this, this rush towards this story, like here it is at last, you know, as if I need to get to the, or as if this, this indicates some sort of spiritual progress that this has come up. Often those deeper stories indicate certainly a becoming more conscious inwardly of what moves us. But then I think we need to be very cautious about then that whole movement of mind that says, you know, I'm going to then be purer, be better, be more enlightened once I get rid of this. You know, I did this for a while, you know, when I was practicing in Asia, there was one tradition where you know, we kind of felt like the more we suffered, the better we were doing, you know. And so we even had a suffering room, you know, where, you know, like it was really kind of considered to be, you know, spiritually um, advantaged, you know, like, you know, if you, you whimpered or screamed or yelled or bounced up and down your cushion, and then you were sent to the suffering room, you know. <laughs> and like people who weren't in the suffering room used to sit and listen to the suffering room. <laughs> and feel envious, you know, because I, they were really getting somewhere. We did this very seriously. Sometimes what we're wanting to do, of course, is to find a better and a happier story, which is quite understandable. Of course, we'd all love to have a happier story. But we need to be really know sometimes the wisdom of practicing some restraint to re remind ourselves again and again that we are not concerned here with the transformation of the contents of our mind. That we are actually concerned very much here with the transformation of consciousness through understanding and through wisdom. That happens. It happens through wise attentiveness. It happens through kind attentiveness. It happens through staying close. It happens very organically. Another dimension of insight, and I would like to say that these dimensions of insight are not hierarchical, they are not progressive, they are not linear. In fact, in our practice, many times we move in different dimensions of insight. But sometimes in the midst of feeling very immersed or overwhelmed by our personal story, it is actually very helpful to almost sidestep into what I would call the second dimension of insight or area of understanding, which is not concerned with the details of our personal story, but which we might call the universal story. 
which is about understanding the nature of life, the rhythms and the laws of existence that no one, no one is exempt from. This dimension of insight is not so much concerned with what happens to me or what I am making happen. It is concerned with understanding really what is true in life, what is true in this moment as it applies to all of life, to all living beings. Now, one area of that insight, of course, as we've already talked about, is understanding the rhythm of change, understanding the nature of impermanence. And many times, of course, we've heard about impermanence so often, you know, and we nod our heads wisely, and we say, oh, I know all about impermanence. But there is, of course, really quite a substantial difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing it on a cellular level. Now, actually, really understanding impermanence is a radical enough insight to totally transform our lives. If we deeply understand that all thoughts, feelings, experiences are as changing as bubbles on a swiftly moving stream, to know that deeply, how would that inform our relationship to every moment? Now, that is a very important question that we ask of ourselves. If I really understand that deeply, how would that inform our relationship to every moment? To those moments when we feel lost in despair or excitement, those moments when we feel depressed or angry, those moments when we feel elated. Well, to hold them in the light of that understanding, what would it mean? It would probably mean not clinging. Our capacity to let go deepens through the understanding of change, and it becomes organic because letting go is the only response of that understanding. It's the actual only response of that understanding to see that all clinging is suffering. It means that we learn to rest in equanimity and awareness of not being for or against anything that presents itself but knowing that our true refuge is in seeing, not in what is seen. Unsatis <coughs> unsatisfactoriness is another dimension of that universal story, as I talked about the other evening. Unsatisfactoriness is also the uh, pain, is the nature of any life that attempts to find refuge in what is impermanent and changing. Suffering is also in trying to find any enduring notion of self in what is not self. Now, I think this question of non-self often vexes people. You know, people often say, what do you mean by non-self, you know? And, you know, how, what is it all about non-self? And how do I find non-self? And do I really want to find non-self? But sometimes I think we just make this whole area just really far more complicated than it is. Non-self is really simple, you know. It's, it's about understanding the nature of interdependence, about understanding the nature of interconnectedness, understanding the nature of how all things are dependent upon one another. We don't need to think about it too much. Huang Po once said, 
If you would spend all of your time walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, learning to calm the concept-forming activities of your mind, you would be sure of liberation. This is very good advice. It is not to say that, you know, thoughts are bad or all thoughts are useless. I bet everybody's had at least a dozen really useful thoughts today. You know, they, you got to the meditation room, you got to lunch, you got dressed, you um, probably washed your dishes. Probably everybody had at least a dozen really helpful, useful thoughts today. And mind you, it is said that we have many, many thousands of thoughts every day. So if, you know, a dozen or two were really helpful, what does it say about the rest? Sometimes it is true we just think too much. We just think too much. Now, some people fear the notion of not-self, of non-self. They, they think it means annihilation. They think it means they don't exist anymore. It's like somebody giving you a donut and then taking everything away except the whole. You know, that's how some people view non-self. It's like, well, you know, maybe the donut was going to be bad for my arteries, but at least it tasted good and it was something there. Some people pursue non-self almost like a holy mission, trying to find the non-self in all things. Again, there's a wonderful story. <clears throat> One day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example, of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Some people pursue non-self through denial and austerity. They engage in the practice of self-bashing. That every time the self appears, they say, that's no good. I have to get rid of that. But this notion of self or this belief in self is a very wily phenomenon. We get seen to get rid of it in one form, and up it pops in another form. One time I was, when I was in India, I went to Hardwar, which is where a lot of sadhus or Indian holy men gather. And I'm, I'm really not trying to make fun of sadhus here, because a lot of sadhus are absolutely fantastic, great people engaged in some really genuine uh, explorations. But anyway, so I'm not trying to make fun of Sandra. Anyway, in Hardware, they have this kind of um, area of the town that's kind of dedicated to sadhus. And 
it's kind of like a sadhu convention, you know. And there's all these kind of uh, stalls set up. And within every stall, there's a sadhu who's kind of telling you about his austerity practice, you know, and how he's doing it. So, you know, you get one stall that's filled with a big bed of thorny branches, you know, and there's a little sign that says, you know, I've been lying on th beds of thorns, you know, for 15 years. And then you go on to the next stall, and there's a sadhu there who hasn't spoken in 25 years. And then you go on to the next one, and there's a sadhu who actually has stood on one leg um, for 15 years. And there's another stall, you know, with a sadhu with his arm up in the air, and he's had his arm up in the air for 10 years, you know. And you kind of you go by and you check all this out, and you know it, it kind of it's kind of wild after a while, you know, because it's like all these guys are doing all these different things, you know, uh, you know, and for so long you can hardly believe it. <laughs> and then uh, one day I was there and I was kind of wandering the sadhu stalls, and it was lunchtime, and the lunch truck rolled up. Well, you know. Suddenly, there was all this commotion, you know, when the sadhus burst out of their stalls, you know, kind of <laughs> knocking each other on the way to get lunch, you know. There was one sadhu hopping on his one leg, and another sadhu with thorns stuck in his back, and another one with his arm in the air, and they're all kind of jostling and pushing, you know, to get to the front of the lunch line, you know, and it's kind of like, Oh, yeah, that notion of self is really a wily creature, you know? It's, it's like you do one thing and up it pops in another way. Remember? Now, in this practice, we're not going to ask you to do any of those things. And we're not going to ask you, actually, to make anything special at all of non-self, not to seek for it, not to pursue it, not to try and get rid of it. In the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutra, from which this practice comes, the Buddha says, you know, he gives all this advice about settling yourself down in your posture, and says, disciples, be mindful to the extent that is necessary for bare understanding and knowledge. And so he says, that's simple. It's also really important to see what is not said in the Satipatthana Sutra. You know, you've got to read between the lines sometimes. He says, be mindful to the extent that is necessary for bare knowledge and understanding. He doesn't say, you know, be mindful to the extent you know where this comes from and why it's there and how to get rid of it and, you know, do you want it or not want it? Should it be there or not be there? Be mindful to the extent that is necessary for bare understanding. Now, what are we mindful of? Well, this is a bigger list. We are mindful of the breath, slowing down, calming our minds and bodies through being mindful of our breathing. We are mindful of our bodies, its posture, its sensations. We are mindful of feelings, vedana, the feeling tone of experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. We are mindful of the mind. If it is contracted or spacious, if it is distracted or calm or equanimous or lustful. We are mindful of the objects of the mind, the hindrances, the 
impressions that arise through the sense doors, the thoughts, the sounds, the sights. And then we are also mindful of more. We are mindful of what is called in this tradition the five aggregates, those aspects of our being that constitute our sense of self, that engage with each other to create our sense of self, our personal world. And they are always engaging with each other, the aggregates. Now, sometimes these aggregates are scanned as, in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes they're translated as being the five heaps. That's a kind of useful phrase. You know, here I am with my five heaps. (laughs) One of those heaps is the aggregate of the body. Another, the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of perception the noting or identifying of what we perceive. The aggregate of mental formations, of the volitions, the emotional element, the reactions, the aversions. And the aggregate of consciousness, the background in which all of this activity is constantly interacting and taking place. Now this may seem like we're being asked to be mindful of an awful lot. We think, that's a big task. How am I going to be mindful? How am I going to remember, you know, if it's this heap or that sense door or, you know, if it's perception or if it's feeling, it's, it's like so much to remember. But it's actually not. Because the secret is, of course, we are only asked to be mindful of one moment at a time. To know one moment as it is to the extent that is necessary for understanding. Now, meditation introduces us to this simple and clear mindfulness. Learning not to embroider. That's what we learn here. Not to embroider. That whatever is happening is as it is. It's just happening. There's an unpleasant feeling in the knee. There's an unpleasant feeling in the knee. That's what it is. You know, there's a delightful thought, and it's just as it is. No embroidering. That bare attention, knowing to the extent that is necessary for understanding, is learning to allow things to be, to embrace all things with mindfulness. All things are revealed to us. Now, mindfulness actually also introduces us to impermanence very naturally. And the understanding of impermanence ripens us for the understanding of non-self. The basic teaching of the Buddha, whatever arises, ceases. So we need to see deeply. There is nothing that arises that will not cease. Knowing that all things that arise will also cease, they do not become a basis for clinging or holding. There is a knowing that all things are governed by the nature of life. There is also the understanding the nature of life. That all forms are dependent upon something else. That there is nothing independent. In this body, mind, feeling, perception, consciousness process, nothing is independent in this world. All things need other things to exist. All things need other forms to be born. It is like if you take a seed, you know, you have a a sunflower seed or something, and you water it, and it becomes a sprout. Well, it's not a seed anymore. Now it's a sprout. You eat the seed. You eat the sprout. 
it becomes something else in your body. Tomorrow it'll be even something more else. We don't look at the sprout and we say, that's a seed. We know it's not a seed. And yet the sprout is born of the seed. The sprout is in the process of giving birth to something else. The sprout is nourished by the sun, by air, by water. All things are dependent upon other things. So too with ourselves. Within our bodies, we hold our births, our childhood, our adolescence, our old age, and our deaths. We hold within our bodies the bodies of our parents. We hold within our bodies the sun and the clouds. We hold within us yesterday and today and tomorrow. Every moment of anger is born of yesterday's fears and memories, sometimes born of our grandparents' fears and memories. Those moments of anger may be the catalyst for tomorrow's joy or our children's fears. Where are the boundaries of self? Where are the boundaries of self? In the Prajnaparamita, it said, the phenomena of life may be likened to a dream, a phantom, a bubble, a shadow, the glistening dew or a lightning flash. And thus, they ought to be contemplated. Equally, it goes on to say, one reality, all comprehensive, contains within it self, all realities. The one moon reflects itself wherever there is a sheet of water. And all the moons within the waters are embraced within the one moon. The Dharma body of all the Buddhas is in my own being, and my own being is found in all of theirs. It is difficult to find in any of this unfolding process a point of unchangingness, a center. All things are related and changing and dependent. It is difficult to isolate any one thing and to say, this is what I am, because of course not. How can it be? How can it be? This understanding of the emptiness of any center is called non-self. There is no one home. There's no one home. This understanding of non-self applied to all phenomena in this world is called shunyata. It is called the understanding of emptiness. To see this, of course there is no clinging. Of course there is no clinging, because nowhere is there belief anywhere of anything to be held on to. The third dimension of insight, the third dimension of insight is sometimes called the timeless story. It is a story of understanding what is ultimately true, the story of understanding what is unconditioned. It is what is called the story, the insight of mystery or liberating insight. There's an old fable about a lost village and a grandmother tells this young girl about this village that has sunk in the sea. And she tells her granddaughter that if you listen well, you can hear the tolling of the bell 
in this lost village. So the granddaughter decides that she's going to try and hear this bell. And every day she goes down to the water's edge and she lies there and listens, hoping to hear the sound of the bell tolling. And she becomes frustrated and doubtful because all she ever hears is the sea and the birds and the sound of the waves that seem to get in the way of her hearing the tolling of this bell. And she's ready to give up. She's ready to give up, thinking that it's only a story of her grandmother. Till one day she decides that she'll go and she'll listen to the sea. And in listening to the sea, calmly and quietly, just listening to the sound of the waves breaking, underneath it all, she hears the sound of the bell. They are not separate. You know, it's not like we leave this behind to go somewhere else. Within all of these many variety of realities, there is held one reality. And our practice is simply to ripen in stillness, to ripen in our capacity to understand, to be mindful to the extent that is necessary to see. Born of that, the clinging dissolves and there comes about more stillness, not the absence of movement, but the inner stillness of not moving towards or away from. The resting of that stillness is truly the, the parent, the parent of very deep and liberating wisdom. We'll have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.